Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ecclesiastes 8. Ecclesiastes 8. We are walking through Ecclesiastes, have been doing so for many months now. Just last week we finished chapter 7 with an important message on life and culture. This week we begin a two-part sermon in Ecclesiastes 8, a three-part series, The Enabler of the Better Way. So for some time now we have been talking about the better way. Solomon talked about the bad way, right? He talked about the way that he had pursued the way of sin, which led to vanity and vexation and death. And then he began to speak of the better way, a better way to live, a way to live wherein we submit ourselves to God's order. We submit ourselves to God's expectations. We submit ourselves to God's way. There's an element of society that exists specifically to enable you to pursue that way. There's an element of society, of God's design in the world that is designed to give you the opportunity to pursue the better way and also to give you the opportunity, should you choose, to pursue the wrong way, to pursue the way of vanity and of vexation. And this enabler is government. What we find in Scripture is that God has ordained government for a purpose. And the purpose unto which God has ordained government is to give you the freedoms and protections necessary to pursue the dictates of your conscience, to pursue the better way. And we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we're going to find Solomon speak about this enabler, speak about what he'll call the king. Now, we don't have a king, right? We don't have a king, in, in a manner of speaking. We have a, a, a government that is separated. We have separation of powers. We have a three, uh, three distinct government um, branches, and those distinct government branches are intended to um, give some level of separation to slow things down and to protect us from tyranny, Now this morning in part one, we're going to focus first upon our responsibility to government. And then next week in part two, we're going to focus upon government's responsibility toward us as citizens. And then in part three, we're going to uh, stitch together a bit of an overarching message on principle and on uh, God's way of seeing government and seeing the world around us. So this morning as we speak about human government, we're going to consider specifically our obligations unto it. And we'll do so by considering the first five verses of Ecclesiastes 8. Next week, we'll do part 2, verses 6 through 17. And as we begin, the Bible uh, says in verse 1, Solomon writing, Who is as the wise man? And who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face to be changed. As we step into chapter 8, Solomon asks his readers this simple question. Who is as the wise man? This question comes at the end of a context 
wherein Solomon says he proved wisdom, but it was far from him. He said that in chapter 7, verse 23. He said, I went and I proved wisdom, but wisdom was far from me. He says, I applied my heart not only to know wisdom, but also wickedness and folly. He said that in chapter 7, verse 25. And so Solomon has tried wisdom, but he's also tried everything else. He says, wisdom told me to do right, and I chose to do wrong. And we talked about last week the fact that, uh, in part, it was Solomon's wives. Remember, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It was Solomon's wives who drew his heart away from the Lord to serve false gods. And that started him down on, on this downward spiral where he sought to find satisfaction in life through everything that, that his heart promised would bring satisfaction. Through money, through women, through fame, through building projects, through power. And he says, I found satisfaction in none of it. So this question becomes very important. Who is as the wise men? Who not only knows this stuff, Solomon asks, but who is, who is not just the wise man, but who is as the wise man? Who actually lives wisdom? Solomon asks, who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? This question is more important still. Who is the man who not only knows what wisdom is, but then understands how to take wisdom and relate it to his circumstances? Who is able to apply wisdom without the inevitable pain and loss that comes from having to learn things the hard way? And this is our goal, Christians. This is, this ought to be your goal. Parents, this ought to be the goal for your children. Your goal is not to know but to believe. Your goal is not knowledge, it's obedience. There are plenty of people who know right from wrong, but that doesn't stop them from choosing the wrong way. Wisdom is not found in those who only know the truth, but those who can take the truths of God, who can apply them to their circumstances, relate them to their circumstances, and then so live them out in their lives. And then Solomon gives us the results of the man who has taken wisdom and who has applied it to his lives, his life. He says, a man's wisdom maketh his face to shine and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Pastor, what does that mean that a man's wisdom maketh his face to shine? Well, I relate it to a couple of passages in scripture where we might be able to get an idea of what this means. When Moses had gone up into the presence of the Lord in Exodus chapter 34, the Bible tells us that when he came down, his face shone as if it was emanating light from itself. I don't know if you ever had uh, growing up, uh, I, we, you know, we'd go to uh, various uh, places like a Chuck E. Cheese or something, go to an arcade of some sort and you get tokens and then you go and you, you get 8,000 tokens and you can buy a little rubber ball, right? And with that, that, that little rubber ball, sometimes it was a glow-in-the-dark ball and those were really exciting. And so it would normally be that kind of weird yellowish, whitish, greenish color, right? And you take that ball and you hold it up to the light for a while and then you shut the light off and that ball is is glowing now. It is It has absorbed some of the light and it is now reflecting it back and then eventually that kind of dies down and and the glow ceases and then you have to do it all over again so Moses came down off the mount and he was not actually shining in himself but rather his face had somehow his skin had absorbed the light of the glory of God and it was shining back that Moses' close 
Intimate communication with God. Because of that, his face had literally absorbed the radiance of God's glory and was reflecting back to the people. So much so that the people were terrified of him. And when he left the presence of God, he had to put a veil over his face to cover his face because the people were terrified to see him radiating this glory. In Acts chapter 6, the Bible tells us about a man named Stephen. Stephen was a deacon in the early church. And the Bible tells us he was full of faith and of power. And he did great wonders and miracles among the people. The Bible tells us that the evil men disputed with Stephen. And Stephen began to preach a sermon about the glory of God. And how Jesus Christ was God's son. And how he died on the cross. And how the Jews had slain him. And as is very typical in debates. When they don't like your argument. But they can't speak against it. What do they do? Well they attack you. Right? We see this regularly today. And that's what they did to Stephen. They resorted not to arguing well against him. But rather to simply silencing him. And in this day. They silenced him by stoning him. So as Stephen is being stoned, the Bible tells us that Stephen's face was as it had been the face of an angel. Acts chapter 6 verse 15. The idea in both of these contexts is that these men of God were so close to the Lord, so in tune with God's spirit, that God's radiance, that God's wisdom, that God's glory literally manifested itself in their faces. Indeed, the old adage goes that the eyes are the window to the soul. And oftentimes, as we interact with people, you'll find that this is true. There's much you can learn about a person from their countenance. And this is the idea that Solomon gives here. That a man's wisdom makes his face to shine. That a man of wisdom will have something in his countenance that shows that. That reflects the wisdom of God. That reflects his character. That reflects his relationship with the Lord. But more than that, the Bible says, the man of wisdom will have a countenance of boldness and the boldness of his face shall be changed. He will have a confidence because his confidence is not in himself or in his government or in people or in his his leadership ability or in his wisdom or in his intelligence. It's in his Lord. And that gives him boldness. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, John writes this, beginning in verse 14, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son To be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The man who has boldness in the day of judgment is the man who has confidence, not in his own performance, not in his own effort, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And so in this life, in the same way, we have boldness. A man of wisdom has boldness to stand upon what he knows, not because he knows it, but because of the source that gave it to him, because Jesus Christ is the one who said it, because the word of God is true. And the man of wisdom is walking in accordance with it. And the man of wisdom is obeying the word of God. And now Solomon is going to focus on another avenue of wisdom and of truth. And it's an avenue which we need to hear. 
one which applies to almost everyone in every generation who has ever lived. Solomon says this beginning in 2 and reading verses 2 and 3. Ecclesiastes 8, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard to the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight, stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. So Solomon says simply this, the wise man submits to human authorities. Solomon says, keep the king's commandment. This is a rather clear statement of expectation and truth. And it's echoed regularly in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Submit yourselves therefore, or excuse me, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And in this passage, take special note of that little phrase that I highlighted for you, for the Lord's sake. Peter links submission to the ordinances of authority to two things. He links it first to obedience to the Lord, and second to Christian testimony. I mean, this is what we tell our children when we tell them that they need to obey their parents, right? You don't obey your parents because your parents are good, godly people. The Bible doesn't say children obey your parents as long as they're believers. The Bible doesn't say children obey your parents as long as they make the decision you think is right. The Bible says children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor thy father and mother. No asterisk, no footnote. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. The idea here is that you don't obey your parents because your parents are worthy of it. You obey your parents because God is worthy and God has commanded you to do so. And we have this same invocation with government. Don't obey your government because your government is worthy. Don't obey your government because your government deserves it. Obey your government for the Lord's sake because the Lord has asked you to. It's not for them. It's not because they're, they're worth it. If you, if you, if you read any of the works of the founders, they would testify that there is no government that's worth obeying. But we obey for the Lord's sake. But also, that last phrase in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 15 of 1 Peter, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter goes on to link this to Christian testimony in an even more real way, saying effectively, God forbid that anyone would ever have true cause to charge believers with evil, with sedition, with rebellion. We do not win people to the truth by argument or sedition or rebellion or revolution. Those are not the tools of the kingdom of heaven. The tools of the kingdom of heaven in our age, the calling which Christ has given us, we even talked about it this morning in Sunday school, is not to fight for our rights, but to yield our rights. 
We fight this battle with meekness, armed with truth, ready to give our lives, not kicking and screaming and fighting to our last breath, but willing to humbly accept the violence and anger of evil men, if by any chance the testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ might shine forth the brighter for our lack of resistance and for our steadfast faith. Now, some of you have already shut down because this is a hard thing to hear. Stick with me. Stick with me, if you will. We'll continue and I'll address some of those concerns in just a few moments. Verses 2 and 3. We have already read them. Solomon says in his day, keep the king's commandment and that in regard to the oath of God. Do it not because the king deserves it, but because God has told you to. Because of your oath to the Lord. Because you love the Lord. Submit yourselves to authorities not because they are worthy to be obeyed, but because God is worthy to be obeyed. Solomon says, don't be so quick to announce loyalty to the authorities that God has ordained and stand against him in rebellion. Now the implication of these words is that the king in question who is one who is not worthy of obedience. If you study 1 Peter, and we did that on Tuesday nights up until the beginning of the summer, we finished 1 Peter. If you study 1 Peter, you'll find that all of the context of submission to authority in 1 Peter is in regard to you are being persecuted, these people hate you, they want you dead. That's the context. Romans chapter 13, a similar idea. And then here, in Solomon's day, a similar idea. Now, this is interesting, right? That Solomon is writing about submitting to a king that is not worthy of obedience because who was the king when Solomon was writing this? He was, right? He was. But what do we know about his, his reign? That he was not a very good king for the majority of the years. He reigned for 40 years and the majority of those years were spent in selfishness and in, in wrongdoing. We know that he was a king that was, though the people were extremely prosperous during his reign, though the Bible says that silver was so plenteous, it was as stones in the street. Like literally silver had hardly any value because there was so much of it lying around. Everybody had silver. No big deal. There was so much wealth and peace and prosperity during his time. And yet he was a harsh king. So much so that after Solomon's reign, when his son Rehoboam takes over, the Bible says that Jeroboam and a coalition of representatives of the ten tribes of northern Israel came and said, your, your father was so hard on us. If you continue to be hard on us, we're leaving. But if you lighten the load that your father gave, then we'll stick around. Rehoboam, of course, listens to his counselors, makes the wrong choice. And says, I'm going to be harder on you than my father was. And so they secede. They leave. They said, we're done. That's what creates the divided monarchy. The northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. So Solomon was a difficult king. He charged high taxes. He demanded the people work uh, in his building projects. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in those years when Solomon had returned unto the Lord, he warns of wisdom. And the wisdom is that the follower of God not rebel against the God-ordained authorities over him. And that for this reason. Because God has commanded it. Solomon finishes his thoughts in verses 4 and 5 in this regard. This is where we'll finish for today in Ecclesiastes. And then we'll apply and we'll pick up next week in verse 6. Solomon says, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time 
and judgment. So Solomon warns about rebellion against king on the grounds that the king has the ultimate authority over which to punish sedition and rebellion. Now, again, we have a little bit of a different system today. We have a system of law that has more checks and balances in place. And to a very large degree, we should thank God for that. There are some benefits. There are some detriments to our form of government, if you've studied history. But that no one has the right to question the word of the monarch was a staple of God's design through the system, certainly of that time. And by this, Solomon warns, if you keep the commandments of the king, then the king will do you no evil. So the wise man does not stir up trouble and strife where trouble and strife need not be stirred up. The wise man not only discerns right and wrong, but the wise man discerns prudence. And so even if he feels he is in the right, he will not be hasty to stand against the God-ordained authority. And Solomon gives his final thoughts in verse 5. We're going to talk about this more in two weeks. That the wise man discerns both time and judgment. The wise man sees the forest, not just the trees. The wise man understands that some things are bigger than just the events at hand. The wise man understands that there are times where principle is more important than immediate results. The wise man understands that the best way to win an argument is not by rebelling against those who have the power to change things. The wise man understands that God is bigger than the authorities of this world and times and seasons are in God's hand and vengeance is in God's hands also. The wise man understands discerns both time and judgment. Now, as Solomon continues, he's going to transition his thoughts to the responsibilities of the authorities themselves. And that's a message that will be more enjoyable to listen to, because that's the one where we, we get to hear about what the government owes us, if I can put it that way. But that's next week, so you'll have to come back for that or listen online. But I really want to take some time to park on the concept of our responsibility to government this morning. We live in the United States of America, in a country founded by men of morality who recognize the authority of God over human affairs, but who nonetheless uh, chose first a system of government with extreme checks and balances, and second, chose to establish that government through rebellion, a revolution. And this puts us in an interesting place in the United States. There's a tension between the Christian roots of our nation and the rebellious roots of our nation, which has created what I will term to be a bipolar Christianity in the United States. We're a Christianity that clings heavily to the concept of God and guns and sees it as our sacred duty not only to stand for the gospel of peace, but also to defend our right to do so with force, if need be. And when our government gets out of line, we comfort ourselves with the philosophy that our government has a healthy fear of its people. And the government has a fear of its people primarily because we are an armed populace. Because we are a populace who has the ability to fight back. My apologies here. Let me readjust this microphone so that we don't get distracted. And while these thoughts are deeply rooted into the Christian mindset of the United States, on the authority of God's word, it's a mindset which the scriptural record challenges to a large degree. There are many principles which come to bear when we consider such a difficult topic. We've talked already about Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, but let's dig a little bit deeper into them. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we've spoke, we, we read it already. This passage calls for us to submit to the higher powers who are ordained by God. 
And in order to be thorough, let's walk through a couple more verses of it today. Verses 3 through 7, the Bible says this. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Paul writes, wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Will you not fear them? Will you not have a healthy respect for them? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So don't just be subject because you know that that their job is to punish evil and that, that you want to be on the right side of them, but also for the sake of your conscience before God. For for this cause pay ye tribute, that's taxes also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, the continued context of this command states that we should not resist the authorities over us because God has ordained them to be ministers of good, to protect those who do good, and to punish those who do evil. Well, by such a standard then, we might reason the same thing that Thomas Jefferson did when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Follow Thomas Jefferson's logic and the logic of many of the founders. When a government ceases to act in the best interest of its people, when a government ceases to reward good and punish evil, when a government stands in the way of the natural rights of man to life, liberty, and property, then by all accounts, divine justice would dictate that the people overthrow that government and put in place one that will respect their rights. So the introduction and preamble to the Declaration of Independence says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers. And here's the interesting part here. He says, From the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Philosophically and ideologically, this is great stuff. And the beginning of this is great stuff, that God has ordained powers and that he has ordained those powers specifically to protect the rights of the people to be able to pursue their own ends. And certainly, this document has laid the foundation for the tremendous freedom and prosperity within which our nation has lived and which the whole Western, whole of Western civilization has benefited and enjoyed for the last 250 years. But theologically, brethren, this concept breaks down the moment he says that governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed. Because that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible does not tell us that governments are ordained to rule by the consent of the people. The Bible tells us that governments are ordained to rule by the consent of God. That's what Romans chapter 13 verse 1 tells us. That God has not established in his, uh, he has not established in his word that you and I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, in many ways, for the follower of Christ, this is the opposite. Those are the rights that we are called to lay down for the sake of Christ. 
Now again, you'll have to listen next week to get the other side of this coin. Stay with me here. To understand this point better, we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll study through this for a few moments. Beginning in verse 1, Peter writes this. As he encourages the people in regard to their persecution. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious. So Jesus Christ was a living stone, a foundation for something to be built upon. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter reminded the Jewish believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire that it was their calling and privilege to suffer persecution in their life for the name of Christ. They suffered as Jews because the Jews hated them for for um, their perceived treason against the, the law of Moses. And they were hated by the Roman government because they were destroying the lucrative profession of idolatry throughout the Roman Empire. And so Peter writes to them and says, have hope. Because there's coming a day when you'll be rewarded in heaven. But for today you need to suffer these things. That it is our privilege to always do right, always live by the principles of love and of grace, even when others would cause us to suffer for it, to the end that our testimony of Jesus Christ would validate the truths of Christ and of his message before the eyes and ears, even of those who are persecuting us. And so Peter says here that we lay aside all malice, all guile, that's trickery, all evil speaking, all hypocrisy, and instead desire the milk of the word that we can grow, that we can be built up into this spiritual house of testimony unto the Lord. Continuing in verses 6 through 8, he says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion, that would be Jerusalem, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded, shall not be ashamed, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. You have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if indeed you have done so this morning. And so Jesus Christ to you, his death, his resurrection, and his message of truth to you is precious. But to those who don't believe, it's offensive, isn't it? When I stand up here and I quote John fourteen six, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is a hard truth for someone who's trying to find another way, isn't it? That's a hard truth for the Muslim. That's a hard truth for the Buddhist, for the Hindu. That's a hard truth for the atheist. That the only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. But that's what the Bible says. And so to the believer, these truths are precious because in them we have eternal life. But to the unbeliever, these truths are offensive. They're stumbling blocks. And that's what Peter's saying here. And if it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, then is it any wonder that they will hate us for the message? We are a house built upon the cornerstone of Christ that is called the church. 
Jesus then is the standard by which our lives are to be lived. And Jesus is the template by which our lives are supposed to be modeled. So Peter continues in verses 9 through 12. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is your job to shine the light of the truth of Christ. Which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which have not had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conversation, that means your lifestyle, not just what you say, but what you do. Honest among the Gentiles, here it is, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter calls us a spiritual house, a people assembled for one reason and one reason only, that we should manifest the praises of Christ to the world. That we should shine his light into the darkness. Our job is to show Jesus to a lost and dying world. By life or by death. By joy or by sorrow. By comfort or by pain. We exist to show Jesus to the world. And so we abstain from the lusts of the world. We live honestly among unbelievers. So that even if they speak evil against us. Calling us evildoers. Our Good works will testify of the truth of the message of Christ. Say, Pastor, what does Peter mean here? Why would they call us evildoers if we're living in honesty and sincerity? Well, we don't even really have to ask that question today, do we? Why would people call us evildoers for our good works and for our faith and for our, for our, our love and, and, and for who we are? Well, we're seeing it play out right before our eyes in culture today. We're seeing that because we believe what the Bible says about marriage or about gender or about truth, obedience, about sin and righteousness and of judgment, we're hated. For these beliefs in the mind of a portion of this country and a portion of this world were domestic terrorists. We're proponents of hatred. Almost weekly, there are debates about whether offensive words should be considered the same as physical violence now. So that saying what I have just said, in the minds of some in this country, is equivalent to assault. And then is it any wonder how they would speak evil of us as evildoers for our good works and intentions? Is it any wonder... When we preach that women should not have the right to allow their children to be killed in the womb, that murder is murder and it's offensive to God and society, and for this belief in a large portion of the Western world, we are the very lowest in society, that we're actually evil people for that belief. We're seen as evil for that. Evil. Because we believe in disciplining our children and training them in the way that they should go, we are seen as evil. And this is what Peter was talking about. It's happening in the world around us. This has not been the first time in church history where good and moral viewpoints on society have caused the world around us to see us as evil. And so we are already in a place where people are speaking against us in this way. 
In October of last year, a professor at Northwestern University just outside of Chicago said that Christian fundamentalists, and she defined Christian fundamentalists as those who take the Bible literally, are more dangerous than Islamic terrorists. She said that in a lecture. It's already happening, folks. First Peter chapter 2 is unfolding before our eyes. And it's not a new viewpoint. If you were to go to a secular college, at some point you would probably read the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most well-known philosophers of the 19th century, who believed that Christians are the absolute lowest form of humanity and must be destroyed and removed from all culture at any cost. This is the philosophy which Peter warns about here, and it is inevitably how the world will view the righteous remnant. Now to the point. Why, why did I just give you all of that? Because that is the foundation of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Do you see Peter's call here? You are not of this world. You serve a heavenly king. And yet this heavenly king has asked you to maintain a proper testimony among the world. To not render evil for evil. To not take vengeance upon yourself. To not fight fire with fire. But to live above that. To live on a higher plane. This heavenly king has designed his message to be declared in peace by those who make peace. It was not ever designed to be promulgated by the edge of the sword. His messengers are called to give none offense to any man, to have no one who can speak evil against our actions or our intentions. Our liberty in Christ allows us to do good, calls for us to do good, and so to shame those who would call us evil by their own ignorance. So that when we're called evil and the people say, what evil have they done? There will be no answer. There will be no answer to that question. All of which in the heart of any reasonable man will come across as foolishness, right? It's foolishness to reward evil with good. It's foolishness to bless those that curse you. It's foolishness to pray for those that would despitefully use you. That's foolishness in the eyes of any reasonable person. And this is the testimony of truth that will sear itself into the hearts of the listeners and many will be led to Christ who will see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But if the charges of sedition and conspiracy and rebellion can rightly be placed at our feet, then we have no basis wherewith to share the gospel of peace through our afflictions. However, if we're willing to suffer for righteousness sake, maintaining our good works, reflecting the same in patience and long suffering as our Lord did when they sent him to the cross, then we will have the praise of God and we will also validate the gospel before the eyes of our persecutors. So Peter continues in context, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience court toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if, 
when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Pastor, I don't like this. Neither do I. But if I could refute it biblically, I would. I can't. It's here. This is the Bible. It's what God says. We don't have to like it. From a human standpoint, from a carnal standpoint, it's not easy. It's not an easy truth. But it's the truth. What glory is it if the people around us cause us to suffer for our evil doings? There's no glory there unto God. What glory is it before God if an evil ruler or ruling class convicts us for crimes and wrongs which we legitimately committed? But if when we do well before God and we suffer for it, we take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. Jesus is our example, as Peter notes as he continues. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. By your stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Jesus is our example, suffering at the hand of evil men, corrupt men, and oppressive government, having done no wrong, being falsely accused, being sent to death, but was when he was reviled, reviled not again, committed judgment to God, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's. He did not pragmatically think that he had to grow some teeth and get nasty. Because the other side doesn't play by the rules. And so we're not going to play by the rules. So the best way to fight those who don't play the rules is play by the rules is to stop playing by the rules ourselves. He instead trusted the Father's bigger plan, the Father's better way, and allowed evil to silence him. But in doing so, not only was he exalted, but his message became an unstoppable force. And in the words of those who put him to death, his message turned the world upside down. That would never have happened had he avenged himself. And if you want my opinion on one of the reasons why our church is so weak today, it's because we've lost this. It's because we're so busy fighting that we've forgotten to follow our Lord Jesus Christ into suffering. We're so busy finding our own solutions to the problem that we've stopped allowing God to fight our battles for us. Now, in light of all that we've looked at today, I'd like to consider two counterpoints. If I may put it this way, I'd like to argue against myself. Can I do that? There are two counterpoints here that I'd like for us to consider. I do not stand here today to tell you what you must think or what philosophy you must have. I have no authority to do that. I'm a messenger. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says. It's your job before God. You will stand before God one day, and you will not stand before God with Pastor Wickler standing next to him. I'm not going to be your judge. You don't have to agree with what I have to say today. And you know what? Those of you that have been here for a while know that I'm not always right. You know that. I know that. I'm not pretending I am. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says. And then it's your job through the Holy Spirit to take what the Bible says and obey it. The Holy Spirit's job is to to apply it to your heart. So I'm not here to tell you what you have to believe. And I know that this message comes with uh, with this this conflict between what has risen in our country as the Christian heritage through our founding fathers and, and the rebellion and the revolution of the day 
and what I believe the Bible has to say to us. So let me give you a couple of counterpoints. And the first one I'm going to, um, I'm going to uh, refute. The second one, however, I'm going to leave for you to think about on your own. If you chafe at the principles I've laid out today, if it rubs you the wrong way to hear a pastor of an independent Baptist church in America tell you that you have no right to rebel against your government, you would not be alone. I chafe against it too, in fact. And one of the verses I often find that comes up in this regard that people bring up is Luke 22, verses 35 and 36. This is the second time the Lord commissioned his disciples to go. And he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, nothing. Then said he unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. I see this all the time running across Facebook with a picture of a gun and then this verse. Let him, let him, let him buy the sword, right? And by the way, I'm a gun owner myself and many in here are and that's fine and that's good. I believe we all ought to be. Within this context, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure and he reminds them of his commission to them that they share the gospel as they did in Luke 9. And he told them in Luke 9, I told you not to take a sword nor script nor money. I told you to take nothing I'd provide for you and indeed he did. Jesus says, now it's time for you if you don't have a sword to go buy one. It's time for you to use money. It's time for you to use the resources at your disposal. And from this, it's been argued that Jesus is calling upon his disciples to become Christian soldiers. It's time to be willing to fight and to repel force with force. Uh, But I don't believe that's at all what Jesus is saying here. Because if he is, then he's contradicted himself, who taught in Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Or Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Or First Thessalonians 5.15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Or First Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we already find a bit of an inherent contradiction. But what is Jesus saying then when he says to buy a sword? Well, we continue in the context, and Jesus is painting a contrast, showing just how much more dangerous the days will be into which we're headed. So dangerous that no man would feel safe without a means of personal protection. Not necessarily calling themselves to arm themselves for battle, but to calling themselves to arm themselves for personal protection, which is good and which is right, and which is our right before the Lord. And if we seek proof of this concept, Jesus continues in verses 37 and 38 to say this, For I say unto you, uh, that this that is written must be yet accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, this is the disciples, Lord, behold, here are two swords. We have two swords, Lord. And Jesus said, it's enough. If he was calling themselves to arm themselves for battle, two swords among twelve would not be very... Uh, good, would it? But if he was calling for themselves to arm themselves unto protection for the danger of the days ahead, two, selves, two swords would certainly be sufficient. So this first argument is one that I see regularly made. The second argument is one which bounces around in my head all the time. I've never heard it from anyone else uh, necessarily. 
But I would like to introduce you to a line of thinking which will throw a kink in everything that I've taught you today. And let me do that because you are capable of thinking. And you have the Holy Spirit. And I'm not here to tell you what to think or what to do. I'm here to help you, help guide you into God's will. Because like I said, when you stand before the Lord, you won't stand before me. You'll stand before God. So you need to make sure that you, you, you're right before Him. And that whatever, wherever you come to on this, that you're confident that when you stand before God, God will say, well done. And the concept is this. As we think about the call upon believers to obey them that have rule over us, we really have such a unique government here in the United States of America, among the nations of history. We would naturally incline our hearts to think of this obligation to the leaders of our land. In this case, the leaders of our land make up three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Having read to you the very briefest portion of the Declaration of Independence earlier, it becomes clear that the United States is a country designed to be ruled by the consent of the governed. We are designed to be a nation by the people and for the people. We are designed to have a decentralized government specifically so that the government itself would not be able to tyrannically rule over its people. As such, the Supreme Leader of the United States is not actually Congress or the President or the Judiciary, is it? The Supreme Leader of the United States is all subject to a particular document, set of documents, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Because of this, in a very real way, it might rightly be argued that the King of America is the Constitution, not the leaders of the land. And if the King is the Constitution, then we may not necessarily biblically be under obligation to obey the command of elective officials, which contradicts the edicts passed down by the king, the Constitution of the United States, until such time as our duly elected officials elect to invalidate the Constitution, which is coming, by the way. It happened in Rome. Rome voted themselves out of a republic and voted themselves into a totalitarian government, and it will happen here as well. The United States government will, at some point in the future, vote to abolish the Constitution. There's already calls for it. The Constitution is racist. The Constitution is this. The Constitution is that. And it will happen. And God forbid that that day should come anytime soon. But it's the way that we're going if God does not intervene. But until that day, there is an argument to be made that the Constitution is our king. That the Constitution is the document for which we are biblically obligated to be loyal to. Not necessarily our elected leaders. And if the king is the constitution, then this changes our understanding of what is right and who we serve. By the dictates of the constitution, the citizens even have a right to cast off their government when it is no longer governing by the consent of the people. Which means you have a prayerful decision to make. Each one of us has to come to grips with how we relate to our government. And it's something that maybe the past couple of generations did not have to battle, but we have to today. Because there's coming a day when our government will come in conflict with our faith in a very, very real way. There's coming a day when our government might might put people in jail for teaching this book. There's coming a day when our government might seek to silence us in a proactive way, might seek to disallow us to assemble. And what we do on that day will come down to what we believe about what the Word of God says 
or it will come down to us being unwilling to listen to what the Word of God says. And I leave you today to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing what the scriptures have to tell us about submission to the authorities, which, by the way, is not just the king, but also governors and magistrates, so we can't blanket say, even if the Constitution is our king, we can't blanket say that we can disobey all the others, right? But knowing what we know, what the Word of God tells us, the context within which it tells us, where are you going to stand today? And that brings me to one final thought as we close. It actually encroaches upon part two, but I need to leave you with this because I don't want those that uh, just have part one to uh, leave too confused or discouraged. In part two, we're going to learn that the responsibility in relation to governing and the governed is not a one-way street. Just like a marriage where the husband is even more accountable than the wife, even though oftentimes the husband's responsibility in the marriage is ignored and the wife's Uh, is focused upon, just like in the church where the pastors, the elders, have more responsibility and accountability than the layman, even though so often we ignore the elders' responsibilities and focus on the layman's. A government has even more divine accountability upon it than the governed do. And God will hold governors accountable for the manner in which they govern And if even a drop of the fear of God would ever find its way back into the politics of this land, it would change it overnight. If any of our leaders, city, state, federal, understood that one day they will answer to God for the way that they govern, it would change this country forever. And another thing we mention as we close, there is a place for war, there is a place for fighting, there is a place for resisting evil. These are not foreign to scriptures, these are not foreign to to God's mandate upon us as humans. I will not stand up here today and say that we should just roll over and allow evil to consume this land or this world, but the responsibility for protecting the people rests with the government. That's their mandate. And it certainly is not with the church. certainly is not with the church. Again, I'm not saying Christians can't become soldiers. I'm not saying that Christians can't become a part of the government-sanctioned, the God-ordained method of protecting people, police officers, soldiers, and the like. But that is the responsibility of government, not of the church. Governors, armies, police, these are God-ordained, God-sanctioned forces to mete out justice against evil. And what governments do against evil is right. And in fact, it's mandated by God. And what Christians do who are a part of the government, as I mentioned, as soldiers, police officers, and such, is right in the sight of God. Romans 13 calls them ministers for good. Now, we'll talk about that more. It needed to be said this time because I didn't want to leave you without that understanding. And so as we close, let me just ask you this. The government is called by God to be an enabler of the better way. We'll talk more about that next week. But in this week, we talked about your responsibility to the government. Are you, what kind of a citizen are you? Not just a citizen of these United States of America, but what kind of a citizen are you in the kingdom of heaven? How is your relationship to these higher powers that are ordained by God? Are you the kind of citizen that has a reputation for honesty so that nothing can be said against you? 
Do you honor the king as you have been called to honor the king? Or are you a rebel citizen living a bipolar Christianity? How is your relationship to authorities? Does it need to be different? Let's close in prayer.